Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel. Each week, we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week, I'm very happy to say we have Scott Hain on the show, and we'll be talking about a book that he contributed. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel. Each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week I'm very happy to say we have Scott Hain on the show, and we'll be talking about a book that he contributed to and edited called The Thinking Space, The Cafe as a Cultural Institution in Paris, Italy, and Vienna. I can I can I can say with some assurance that the people who listen to this show probably spend a lot of time in cafes. I, I'm pretty sure about that, Scott. So I bet everybody will be very uh, interested in what you have to say. So welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here, Marshall. Absolutely. And uh, in a sense, we're hoping to turn this into a story of a cafe on the radio. Yeah, that's because true. Because what's interesting radios were a very important part of cafe life uh, in the 1930s in France. Yeah. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I know that when um, televisions were first, I don't know, invented, but they first entered wide distribution, that they were often put in um, bars and people would go to bars and watch the television. <laughs> that's one of the, It was a public that, activity. <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. Uh, from the age of uh, phonographs through movies, uh, radio, television, through the internet cafe, almost every new technology has first sort of entered the public realm in bars, cafes, and taverns, because that's such a wonderful place for a tryout. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I hadn't thought of that. That's true. So could you please begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, Scott? My pleasure. I uh, was born in 1950 in California in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I know just saying that brings thousands of cliches to mind, and in my case, some of them are very true. I <laughs> lived in a rather, uh, a rather staid suburb, very close to Berkeley, but with a very different mentality than Berkeley. I, I think to sum up what in many ways drew me to the cafe was the image that it might have the sort of spontaneous and free-flowing sociability that was so much a part of the 1960s. And I should note that there were many fascinating and alluring cafes in Berkeley in the late 60s and 70s. So I think that's in part how I uh, connected my own uh, personal uh, interest to the larger historical flow. So tell us how this book came to be. How did you come to write about cafes yourself? And then how did you have the idea of putting together a whole bunch of folks to write about cafes in these uh, three places, Paris, Italy, and Vienna? 
what wonderful question. And uh, to give a brief story of overview, I worked uh, as an undergraduate at Berkeley and finished up with a uh, senior honors thesis on Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I headed off to the University of Wisconsin-Madison thinking that this was going to be a good foundation for a master's and a dissertation. But my first day of graduate uh, seminar was really a revelation. A person from seemingly outlying Oklahoma had come up with what I still think is perhaps the best PhD topic I've ever heard. And in the 1970s, in many ways, this was utterly cutting edge, or even before the cutting edge. He was already doing oral interviews in Africa, in Senegal in particular, with World War I veterans mm. who had fought in France for the French army, the Senegalese Treilleurs, uh, their mm -hmm. sharpshooters. And after hearing what he was doing, I thought to myself, I've got to really revamp. To make a long story short, my major professor, Edward T. Garden at um, Wisconsin, talked about in those first weeks how connecting mental and social life together was a real sort of DNA project for history. And it suddenly struck me that doing something like the cafe would give me a chance to look at both ordinary people in their daily lives and the way events, intellectual fads, traditions, ideas, and intellectuals themselves entered cafes. Um, Thomas Pynchon from Gravity's Rainbow, who I cite in the introduction to the thinking space, talked about cafes as overcoming the quote-unquote dusty, dusty dracularity of Western civilization. <laughs> Here's a way that the thoughts of society can really get some blood and uh, spirit in them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. So uh, how did you put together the authors for the book? Well, it, it, in essence, uh, I had come out with my working class cafe book. This was my dissertation uh, remodeled into a monograph from Johns Hopkins University Press on working class cafes from the French Revolution to World War One, And suddenly one day in the late 90s, I get a wonderful letter from Leonor Ratner, a French and Italian scholar in New York City. And she says that she is putting together a collection of essays on cafes in Paris, Vienna, and Italy, and asks if I would like to participate. I jump at the chance because I had already been thinking about moving into a study of intellectuals in cafes after having done the working class. Over time, um, the project evolved. Uh, some new contributors came in. Others uh, went elsewhere. It took a long time. Uh, what really sort of sealed the um, success of the project was to bring Jeff Jackson in, who, of course, has published two wonderful books and is a contributor to our collection. His um, essay on jazz in Paris, following off from his book, essentially on the same subject, and then Paris Underwater. 
Now, it's interesting studying the history of disasters, which is becoming important these days. There's a connection to cafes there, too, because often in disaster areas, the natural sort of headquarters for relief is often bars, taverns, cafes, a Mm -hmm. public place. So um, the project evolves. We have one publisher, then another potential publisher, (laughs) but things don't. (laughs) These things often happen, especially with essay collections, which publishers are often uh, fearful of these days. But in essence, with Jeff, we got a wonderful publisher with um, Ashgate. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, so that's the long process. Okay, got it. So let's begin to tell the story. Uh, And again, I told you in the pre-interview, I was going to ask some preliminary questions just so that I might be better informed. Uh, Coffee. The word coffee and cafe—they're related, right? Uh, where did how did coffee come to Europe? Well, in essence, here I think you, you get to a very fascinating question as to why uh, the, the coffee bean, if you will, emerges into human consumption so relatively late compared to other stimulants. Really, only in about the 14th, 15th centuries is it really exported out of Ethiopia, where the original being was found, first to the Muslim world, and then to, uh, of all places, England, and in particular, London. London, in many ways, is the first great Western coffeehouse culture. But as I say, much of this first developed in the Islamic world. And from the very beginning, we see coffee houses being controversial. Uh, a, a wonderful study of Coffee and cafes in um, Islam notes that the question of whether coffee houses were legal really set an Islamic legal precedent when uh, basically judges in Mecca said that unless a place is an absolute and specific danger to society, it should not be shut down. So from the beginning, coffee houses had a certain air of being dangerous. Ideas and activities might be going on there that weren't strictly, if you will, legal or within the normal boundaries. Mm -hmm. But basically from uh, Islam, where coffee was often called the wine of Islam, we see it moving west. Uh, there, There are many, many myths on cafes. But what we do know for sure is that by the late 17th and early 18th century uh, in London, authors such as Addison and Steele in um, newspapers such as The Spectator and The Tatler basically were reporting coffee house uh, news and information. Key here is that as coffee enters Europe, the newspaper begins to develop and an important synergy develops because newspapers initially were very expensive and only the elite could subscribe to them. Coffee house owners quickly grasped that if they subscribed to newspapers and sold coffee, they would have a winning combination. And this would play itself out first in London, then in European cities across the continent. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the a reaction of clerics of all stripe to coffee because in Islam, of course, there's a ban on drinking. I don't know about stimulants generally. I also happen to know that uh, when tobacco was introduced into the West, at least, um, a lot of uh, religious authorities had had difficulty with it. I know from my studies of early modern Russia that it was absolutely prohibited and you could be <clears throat> punished for using it. How, how did clerics react to the introduction of coffee? It is a stimulant. It's a drug. Well, g- going back to the Islamic world, many um, mystics love coffee because <laughs> it allowed them it, it, it allowed them to keep praying. Yeah. It allowed them to keep up with their devotion. Right. So, uh, in, in many ways, coffee was seen as something very good. But of course, in Islam, there were critics of coffee too. The same thing appears in um, Europe with. Um, both Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, a pope in the 17th century would essentially come out and say coffee was fine, but there, there was often a real back-and-forth debate on whether it was a healthy uh, product or one that was a poison. Was it a stimulant, but might it not cause over-excitation? Mm-hmm. What I love is that Bach, of course, his coffee cantata, which is very famous, he basically did this for a coffee house. Hmm. So, if you will, Bach was a classic example of the cafe musician. Mm -hmm. My point overall is that, for the most part, from the beginning of the introduction of coffee, especially in the West, it was realized that this was a great antidote to alcohol. Here was something that ordinary people could drink and drink with safety. The big problem with water throughout most of human history is that it so easily spoils. And this is why alcoholic drinks were so often preferred, because they were basically sterilized one way or another. Suddenly with coffee, and of course tea is the same way, but tea never really has quite the same resonance in the West um, that coffee does. Here was a way to have a stimulating beverage that people could gather over and they would become more efficient. And with the rise of capitalism, if you will, not to be too um, summary on this point, you, you have a perfect sort of marriage. To think that Lloyd's of London began in a coffee house and supposedly in the Lloyd's of London office today, it basically encloses the original coffee house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so even, even though coffee was controversial, it never really um, met the same sort of uh, prohibitions that, for example, tobacco did. Yeah, right. So this is one of those products that you hear people in marketing say sells itself. And I would, again, put it in the category of um, alcohol and tobacco. It spread like wildfire. Correct? Oh, yes, yes, definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, you very quickly have um, the coffee houses, usually for the elite. Uh, then you have basically uh, itinerant coffee sellers with basically a cart or a uh, big pot on their back, selling it in the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of France, with its guild system, 
you had a separate, in essence, coffee sellers guild as opposed to the wine merchants guild. <laughs> so as, as, as cafes develop, especially in France, they really are very much a different type of institution than the tavern, which had been ubiquitous in France from the very beginning yeah. of um, uh, French history. And you see from the beginning a very sharp um, response on the part of the clergy against taverns. They're seen as anti-churches. Often it was said that uh, peasants and urban workers would be drinking in the uh, bar or tavern. And when they heard uh, mass being performed, they would rush over to the church to get that to get that extra sip of wine. Well, yeah, I, I like what you mentioned about guilds and thus and such in France, because here in this little town in western Massachusetts where I live, there are a lot of cafes, and uh, one of the topics of discussion among the chattering classes is whether they should, I don't know who they is, but unionize baristas. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. <laughs> Only in this little town in western Massachusetts could that be an issue. <laughs> but uh, uh, the labor movement in your town has a fine pedigree. In the late 19th yes. century, <laughs> French uh, garçons tried to right. unionize and especially win the right to wear mustaches. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, the mustache issue, I think, is not, doesn't come into play here. <laughs> But it's sort of funny. So here's a question I had about cafes, and, and that is that, you know, I, I don't go to a lot of cafes. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I brew all my coffee at, at home or in my office. W was it the case that it was just impossible for people in the 18th century to brew coffee at home? And, and so they had to go to these places a little bit like, you know, you don't brew your own beer at home. You go to the tavern to get it. Oh, yeah. oh yes. No, that, that is definitely a, a key point absolutely vital and important. I, I should note here what's so fascinating, sort of conversely, I, I've done a lot of oral interviews on the history of cafes in uh, our living lifetime, and, and many people say it's almost a cliche that uh, people don't go to cafes as much now because they can basically have their own espresso makers right. at home. Right. I had one person, though, tell me a fascinating story that even though she has an espresso maker at home, she finds the espresso in her downstairs cafe to be better. So she'll often go down there to get her coffee. Mm -hmm. So there, there was always very much a story back and forth between whether you were consuming at home or in a public place. It's fascinating that for the most part in Europe, Coffee houses and coffee have been labeled and tagged as essentially public rituals. Mm -hmm. Traditionally in America, even though we did have coffee houses almost as quickly as um, London did because of the British Empire, coffee became more of a private phenomenon than a public phenomenon. That's why I think Starbucks and the whole wave of coffee houses that have emerged over the last 25 years or so are a fascinating divergence from what traditionally was a very 
very private ritual mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in America. So you go to Starbucks today and you can have 83 different kinds of coffee, uh, some of which are like, you know, a half-calf le- de- decaf with, you know, goat milk foam on top and things. I don't know what it all is. I can't even remember. But what, how, did, <laughs> how did they, how did they, you know, in the, in the 18th and 19th century when these institutions were developed or by the 19th century had fully developed, how did they brew this stuff? I mean, what did you get when you go to, go to a coffee house? Did you say, I want a cup of coffee? Um, that, that, that's a great question, and of course, it, it would vary greatly from um, coffee house to coffee house and from uh, nation to nation. Uh, often, the first coffee houses and their uh, drinks were often, from our perspective, rather rudimentary. Um, so it, it would vary greatly from um, nation to nation, city to city. Um, it's only in the, the late 19th century that you really begin to get the sort of modern uh, uh, cafe phenomenon uh, as we think of it. Right. But espresso, for example, I, I'm just trying to remember this, is a pretty recent phenomenon. I don't think it's 100 years old. I mean, maybe you don't know either, but I think the espresso machine, as we understand it, is like interwar or something. You know? I, I think it very. I think it very well. Maybe I, I hate to say here that I'm not as current on the actual preparation of the drink. Sure, I just wonder. As I, I, I should, yeah. should be. No, no, no. That's but, all right. But, I just no, wondered. Yeah. But, uh, but you, you know what? What's fascinating along this line is that um, detailed studies of particular coffee houses in. 18th century Paris have shown a phenomenal amount of brandy and spirit <laughs> so, so, so the image we have of these people being sober, sharp uh, intellectuals in these establishments may not necessarily be true. Yeah. And also, well, what you find is that often coffee would be mixed with calvados or rum, or fierce, so that often uh, you can't simply isolate uh, coffee as much as you would like. But I, I think along this line, one of the great images of coffee houses and their relation to modernity comes from Jules Michelet, a French historian in the 19th century, who talked about how at the famous Café Procope, where many of the great philosophes gathered, Rousseau, Voltaire, Diderot, how they would look into their coffee cups and at the bottom of them, uh, around the grounds, if they looked hard, they could see or they were envisioning the French Revolution. (laughs) So, I mean, one thing you say about uh, cafes rings true in my own experience. I remember when I first went, I think it was France. um, many, many, many years ago, and I went into a coffee shop, uh, a tabac, right, or whatever they c- call them now. I don't yes. know what they call oh, them, yes. right? Oh, yes. Right. But these places serve everything, and especially booze. You know, they have taps. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that. Uh, I, I'm often asked by, um, how shall we say, um, really, um, you know, rigorous uh, scholars at conferences, uh, please tell us the difference between a coffee house, a tavern, a bar, a kebab, 
Good luck. <laughs> and I, I say, since there is no formal, at least in France today, there is no formal distinct license for each of these. There's just basically a liquor license. You really can't separate these out. It's yeah. really, in many ways, more the ambiance, which mm-hmm. can change from uh, moment to moment often. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the overall point is that uh, across Europe, with the introduction of cafe, even cafes and coffee, even if they were often consumed with alcoholic drinks too, there, this was a new institution. And people realized that in many ways, the upper classes were now stepping out into public life in a way they hadn't before because these places tended to be more um, respectable, more deferential in terms of keeping privacy and not engaging in brawls and drunken uh, behavior. So the coffee really did have a profound effect on the mores of 18th and 19th century Europeans. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think just as you say, it was a place to go into public and meet your fellows in which you didn't get drunk necessarily. Because in most cases, either you'd be in church, you'd be at work, or you'd be getting drunk. But here's a, another space where you weren't getting drunk, probably. Exactly, exactly. And in an age before driving and the use of machinery, it really didn't cost anyone very much to be a bit tipsy across the day because you would be working at hard physical labor usually and if you had a bit of um, alcohol in you that could be a real stimulant Mm -hmm. and you would of course burn it off so the sort of relationship to alcohol that we have today is very different from the one in a pre-industrial age Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so one of the cliches about we'll talk about a lot of the cliches so it's going to do some cliche busting or maybe cliche supporting. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, one of the cliches about um, about cafes is that's where revolutions are planned. You know, that's where uh, the intellectuals get together and they decide to make the next utopia and maybe even bring it into practice. I remember in my own reading about – this is a long time ago – about what Lenin did when he was in Zurich. He spent a lot of time in Zurich and he went to cafes oh, yes. and dreamed up the revolution. That's at least what I was told. I don't really oh, know oh, much about oh, that. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, And, of course, uh, Lenin was also in Paris, as was Trotsky. And uh, there is, I must say, a a lot of truth to this. In a biography of George Washington that I read, it notes how one French uh, officer who came over, like Lafayette, to fight with the American revolutionaries uh, was very disappointed initially and said, there is more revolutionary sentiment in the Paris cafe than there are than there is in the, the colonies, and, and this basically is a contemporary saying. This, so I, I think that well, the, the the big question always becomes: to what degree is talk important in any society? Because the the, the famous sort of notion, and this is an old one, refer. Lamont, basically remake the world mm-hmm. in your conversations. Is this just, if you will, um, uh, empty word making, or does it really hold the key for transforming consciousness? Um, I think you have a whole spectrum 
of answers to that question. Uh, sometimes a moment in the cafe can really be a revelation. Other times, of course, it's frustration or simply passing the time. So I think it is a real gamut. Uh, it's often been said, well, is it really that surprising that a public place would gather people who would then go on to make important decisions or do important actions? Where else would they do it? That's often been the criticism of studying the cafe and that it's a public space and isn't it obvious that people would use it? But the answer to that is that marketplaces, streets, squares can often be incredibly important or, of course, neighborhoods. What I think historians increasingly are doing is really specifying when, how, and why particular spaces were used for particular activities. So I, I think that certainly um, much fervent revolutionary thought was cooked up in cafes, but as Rilke, when he was in Paris, and as he passed working-class cafes, noted many of these people were simply exhausted, and they really couldn't think much beyond what they were going to do in the next half hour. So I think that even though you can find cafes with a lot of intense intellectual life through the centuries, for the most part, um, most governments have wisely not over-regulated cafes, but allowed these places to be, if you will, places where the um, energies and the frustrations of the day can be released. Mm -hmm. Here, if you will, are cooling off places. Mm -hmm. You can go in, kick the chair, swear at the um, cafe owner, and uh, settle down with a meal or a coffee and come out and feel that you've uh, made your life better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But of course, for many people, this turns coffee houses into little more than sort of another form of the opium of the masses. <laughs> so it's fascinating that uh, revolutionaries have often been very ambivalent. While they may often use coffee houses when they're out of power, they may want to suppress them when they're in power or simply say, leave them alone. They're not really that important. Mm -hmm. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because the, uh, I'm sure that I'll get letters about this or emails. The Soviet Union didn't have cafes. Uh, they, they had, uh, well, you know, they had places that were called cafes. They weren't cafes though. Uh, you know, you couldn't sit down in them, number one. And also, you know, you didn't want to meet in them. Of course, you didn't want to meet with anybody in the Soviet Union. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't, no, they didn't have the, they didn't have bars either. So. Wow. Well, you know, it, it, it's the, the Soviet Union is utterly fascinating along that line, especially given how a fascinating, um, cabaret culture had developed at the end of the Azaris uh, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Lenin had spent a lot of time, I think, in Zurich planning the revolution, so he knew that he didn't want other people in 
Russian cafes planning any more revolutions. I mean, it isn't to say that they didn't have some sort of public life. They did. But, you know, for somebody like me, an American going there for the first time in the 80s uh, and, and seeing that um, that they didn't have cafes, they didn't have bars, uh, that they had something, but it was just hard to recognize what it was. People didn't gather there that private spaces were much more important. There weren't a lot of public spaces for that kind of thing. Um, oh, yes. Well, I, I think in many ways that's the definition of a totalitarian society. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody said meet me in a bar because there weren't any bars. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, amazing. Right. You met amazing. people. You met Usually you met people in the metro station, you know, by the statue. Meet me by that statue, you know, and you know which one it is. And so uh, and then you go home. That's right. So at what point did uh, did did cafes become associated with sedition? Was it the right after the French Revolution or was it the French Revolution? Oh, uh, fr from the very beginning, oh, I see. Uh, Louis the Fourteenth, uh, and in fact, I found this in uh, published uh, archives of the uh, police under Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, Louis, from the moment he hears about the opening of cafes in Paris, wants them closely regulated. <laughs> he wants to know what's going on there because, from the beginning, especially in Paris, the elite went to cafes. So what they would say in cafes would be very important. So, uh, so from the beginning, especially in France, they, they were tightly regulated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. So, um, can you, uh, we just talked about the Soviet Union. Can you think of, and, and regulation, are there any examples you can give of the authorities shutting down cafes because there were too many people like oh, uh, Lenin in the planning revolution? Well, if you will, the best example of this would occur under uh, Napoleon III, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, the great Napoleon's nephew, wins the 1848 French presidential election, essentially the first modern European universal male suffrage election, largely because, of course, his name is Napoleon. And for the small majority peasant population, well, it was obvious who to vote for. After he uh, becomes president, of course, he angles to become emperor. And as he stages a coup d'etat in December of 1851, he passes, well, he doesn't pass, he decrees a new law that, in essence, uh, makes every cafe in France a matter of basically the prefix the equivalent of American governors. And across France, between 1851 and about 1853, about 50,000 cafes are shut down. 10,000 or so had been shut down between the 1848 revolution and Louis XIV, I mean, Louis, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon III's um, coup d'etat. So here was the moment in European history where cafes really become, in many ways, enemy number one. The police, in their normal activities, usually can intimidate any cafe owner so that they more or less fall into line. Mm -hmm. The one problem with that is if you overregulate cafes, if you really clamp down on them too heavily, people begin to feel they're living in a dictatorship. 
So there's always a very fine line between repression and allowing popular expression for a normal daily function of basically eating, drinking, and recreating as part of daily life. So it's a very complex interplay, but Paris and uh, France probably gives the best and most explicit example of a government repressing cafe life. Mm -hmm. I see. And that's in the mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. So the book is explicitly comparative. It talks about Paris and, and, and Italy and, and Vienna. Lots of other places like England are mentioned. Would it be possible for you to give us a kind of tour of European cafes in, let's say, the 19th century? And what I'm specifically looking for is ways in which they differed. I'm always interested in how institutions are what I call indigenized. You know, they are made to conform with local patterns. A great example is baseball. It's an American game, but it's played lots of different places and in different ways. So can you talk a little bit about how the cafe was indigenized to, I don't know, Parisian or Viennese or Roman culture? Definitely. That, that, that's a great question and a great concept. Uh, going back, if you will, to Britain, what I think is so fascinating is that the uh, British coffee house, its last great, if you will, graduate, if you will, was Thomas Paine, <laughs> who, of course, would be central to both the American and the French revolutions. But coffee houses in Britain essentially were often known as penny universities with the large number of newspapers, with a group of people constantly gathering, very much wanting to know what is the latest news. Intellectual conversation was part and parcel of all of this. It's interesting, by the early 19th century, coffee houses in London and in England in general begin to turn into gentlemen's clubs or restaurants. And this sort of sociability begins to move out of the public realm and more into the semi-public realm of gentlemen's clubs. And so the coffee house tradition in many ways um, disintegrates in London just as it begins to pick up in France. Now, in France, what you in essence see is from the beginning, coffee houses often really associated more than they were in London with luxury, with opulence, with, if you will, reflectivity in the sense that mirrors, chandeliers, marble top tables, carpets, all of these things become associated with coffee houses. And certainly, though not every cafe in France is going to have that, references to this image would often be made. Uh, the number of mirrors, it would be fascinating to explore the increase in the number of mirrors in French coffee houses from the late 18th to the late 19th centuries to see how that e evolves. Mm -hmm. So uh, in France, too, um, the French Revolution ends the guild system. So coffee houses after the French Revolution, can serve any product they want as long as 
a large number of newspapers. So in, in France, cafes become in many ways more of a intellectual and social event rather than a part of urban life and uh, intellectual discourse as they were in London. So very much tied to newspapers, the French Revolution, and the act of basically associating for political purposes becomes much more active. Uh, Also from the time of the Romantics, Gautier and other uh, French Romantic writers, especially Baudelaire, but then we get into modernism in many ways, the whole notion of being a flaneur, of roaming through the city, lounging in cafes, observing (laughs) urban life. This becomes in many ways a signature of the French cafe. And that was really not something that you would see in London. And this was all part, too, of the increasing uh, use of the terrace, which ironically really explodes with the uh, Haussmanization that Louis Napoleon Bonaparte does to reconfigure Paris, to make it a great opulent city. While the number of cafes around France was falling in Paris, the number of cafes exploded across the 1850s and 60s, going from about 5,000 to 22,000. The new boulevards proved to be perfect places for what we think of as the French cafe. But as you see, it occurs relatively late, though. not immediately after the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. During the French Revolution, many of the great cafes were in the Palais, Palais Royal, which is basically right next to the Louvre. The Palais Royal literally had everything. It had basically gambling, prostitution, uh, politics in cafes, uh, bands, uh, magic tricks, really an incredible incubator for the revolution. That's basically shut down by the um, rather puritanical Louis Philippe when he becomes citizen king in 1830, and Paris cafes begin to spread out on the boulevards that are emerging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of Italy, well, what I think is so fascinating in Italy is more, I think, than in Paris. Italy had real coteries of writers gathering in cafes, and you had a real story of camaraderie of writers in the great uh, cafes of Rome, and many of the um, provincial cities of Italy. More than in France, Italy is a nation that is filled with amazing cafes. It's not just Rome or Florence, but a whole cluster of cities in Italy has an amazing number of cafes. In many ways, here I think Italy follows or is on the same path as Spain, where the literary gathering, the tertulia, was a very important phenomenon in the 19th century. 
and much of Spanish literature was either conceived in, written on the tables of, or is about cafe life. Mm-hmm. In Vienna, um, what we see is the apocryphal story, in essence, of the Turks laying siege to Vienna, being defeated, and all their coffee bags, which they leave behind as they uh, retreat, being picked up by an enterprising um, entrepreneur who then begins the coffee house tradition. Mm-hmm. Historians have shown that that was not the case. But in many ways, one could argue that the coffee houses of Vienna, especially in the late 19th century, produce the most significant intellectual productions in cafes. The fact, for example, that the Vienna Circle of Philosophers met in cafes. Freud went to cafes a lot. Peter Altenberg, one of the great Austrian writers, in many ways uh, provides a segue, if you will, into the Internet age because he was a master at the small micro-study, basically going into a cafe and sizing up individuals, moments, uh, interactions, in-depth, pithy prose poems. Baudelaire did this too, but in many ways, Altenberg really refined this. And in many ways, uh, this, I think, has become all the more uh, prevalent these days. I I don't mean to say that there's a direct link, but the the tweets that have become ubiquitous in America in some ways are like the quips that were a part of the 19th century cafe experience. I should note here that French newspapers in particular often used to have whole sections devoted to little observations of what people said or did in public places. Often cafes, of course, were prominent in these little daily life observations. So um, each city, each culture takes the cafe in unique directions. Um, Stefan Spide, in his autobiography, The World of Yesterday, notes how Vienna cafes at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries really were almost libraries. Almost every conceivable newspaper on the continent and from abroad could be found in coffee houses. Coffee houses really provided the time and the space to really engage in study and intellectual conversation. Also very important, we see a real melange of cultures in Vienna in terms of um, not merely the Vietnamese, um, if you will, elite, but also the large influx of Jews from Eastern Europe created their own very distinctive sorts of coffeehouse cultures in Vienna. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if we could turn, we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to turn to uh, the American context. And uh, I'm particularly interested because I'm an American and I'm here. So uh, how did the peristyle, the late 19th century peristyle coffee and this word, I'll use this word advisedly, coffee house. That's sort of what we call it, called it in the United States, or coffee shop, even better, uh, get to the United States. 
Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting along this line, Marshall, that often today the term cafe society will be used. And they'll, people will often ask, what was cafe society like in 19th century Paris? The term cafe society, interestingly enough, comes from early 20th century New York and referred not so not so much to actual coffee houses, but to nightclubs uh-huh. and to that whole sort of cabaret experience mm-hmm. that developed in the late 19th century, first in Paris, but was then very strong in Vienna, in Zurich, um, in Russia even. And so coffee houses come to America in Part, uh, with, uh, ironically going all the way back, with the spread and development of the British Empire in the late 17th and 18th centuries. Mm-hmm. Just as coffee houses were opening in London, we see coffee houses also in Boston and Philadelphia. There's often a controversy as to whether they were really taverns rather than coffee houses. But coffee was consumed, and taverns, coffee houses were very important for the American Revolution. In essence, Jefferson wrote much of the Declaration of Independence in a coffee house or tavern. But that sort of Enlightenment founding father's milieu dies out by the mid-19th century, and the American saloon becomes the norm. Uh, with the arrival of especially Southern European immigrants, especially Italians, this begins to change. Though, of course, much of this is interrupted by prohibition. With the um, 1920s and the development of Greenwich Village and whole sort of protest culture of Greenwich Village, of the bohemian world, uh, you do begin to get the rise of what one might call coffee houses, though probably it's the 1950s, and with uh, coffee houses in San Francisco, such as Cafe Trieste and the whole beatnik phenomenon, that you begin to get what one might really recognize as a sort of American coffee house culture. It's interesting that I wrote a brief article on American coffee houses for a dictionary of American leisure, and my first sentence was, the American coffee house has yet to find its historian. Mm-hmm. This is still a topic that needs a great amount of research and uh, delineation to uncover because as I say uh, even now some of the quote unquote standard uh, texts on the history even of Paris cafes are being shown to be full of myth rather than real documentation. Mm -hmm. Cafes are a place that are in a sense like the purloined letter of Edgar Allan Poe they hide in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And um, this is what I think makes them uh, such amazing spaces because they act upon us in ways that we often are not fully cognizant of. A big point of my introduction to the thinking space and trying to show that intellectual cafes 
have not only so much died as been transformed, because we live in a society based on knowledge. And increasingly, people use cafes when they're traveling or when they're uh, simply out in the city, outside their uh, homes and apartments during the day. They use the cafe to check their email, (laughs) to write down some important notes. So in a sense, the distance between the classic sort of intellectual cafe where a group might have their own table and the cafe where, quote-unquote, ordinary people might go, this distance is decreasing. What you see, too, is a whole raft of books on creativity, how we can all become more creative. And usually these books have at least something about public places and the uh, free flow of ideas and inspirations that one can get moving from space to space from alternating intense concentration with relaxation. And often when you're in a new place or in a place that's not uh, something that's utterly predictable, new ideas emerge. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that we've included in our collection of essays is those sort of aha moments when people find cafe life to be incredibly inspirational. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, and I want to talk about that, but I mean, we're almost out of time, but you've just raised a lot of interesting questions. One thing that fascinates me uh, is things that uh, an alien, that is somebody from Mars might think were cafes, but we don't call them cafes. They're almost cafes. And there's some, reason we don't call them cafes. And what I'm thinking about is, first of all, the, what, we, what I grew up called, called calling the coffee shop. And that was a place where you went and you sat in a booth and a woman in a polyester uniform with a hat on came over and said, would you like some more coffee? Hun. <laughs> she always said hun. Yeah. Every oh, time yeah. she says yeah. hun. All right. So that, yeah. is that a coffee ha- shop? And then the other one is, um, is that, I mean, is that a cafe? And then the other one, of course, I mentioned this in the pre-interview is Dunkin' Donuts. Is that a coffee shop? Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I think according to the classic definition, it would not be. Mm-hmm. Because I think a classic cafe, if you will, will have tables. They don't necessarily need to be marble, but they need to be tables that really allow a person to have a sort of enclosed space. Mm-hmm. Ideally, they should not be in booths, which basically make you claustrophobic. <laughs> they should give you a view of the rest of the room, ideally the street and the city outside. Mm -hmm. And ideally, the wait people will ask you for your order, but then essentially leave you alone. Mm -hmm. John Paul Sartre during World War II would often go to the cafe floor, order one cup of coffee, and that would be it for the entire day. And many uh, of the other cafe owners in the Saint-Germain-de-Prés um, area asked the owner of the floor, well, how do you tolerate this deadbeat just having one cup of coffee? And the answer, of course, was because he brings in a whole universe of friends and acquaintances and those who want to meet him. Uh-huh. So in much of cafe life in Europe, 
there is a tradition that you, in essence, rent a space. Yeah. You're not merely buying a cup of coffee, you're renting a space. And sadly, even in some very nice cafes here in America, you'll often see uh, signs saying, time limit half an hour, yeah. an hour. Yeah. Or, you know, we have a lot of uh, customers this month, please just limit your stay to 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, that defeats the real story of ambience of the quote-unquote true cafe. But these sorts of spaces are informal, free-floating, and free. If you wanted to really destroy the cafe, you wouldn't close it. You would do the following thing. You would demand of every person going into the cafe that they fill out a sort of IRS sort of form. Who are you? Why are you coming here? How long have you been here? What have you thought about? What have you talked about? Would anybody go to a cafe if they had to fill out that sort of form, which, of course, would be paradise for the professor, but it would completely negate the whole reason people go to coffee houses. And I think this is in part one reason why they are so alluring for people and yet uh, at the same time so daunting as research topics. <clears throat> no, I, I see just what you mean. And I find that convincing what you say about the time limits on sitting because you can't go to uh, Denny's or whatever it is and, and sit there forever. And in Dunkin' Donuts, usually there's a place to sit down, but it is not very comfortable. So they, <laughs> they do not want you there for very long. Um, so Yes, and usually you just can't spread out your papers no, or your books. No, not, very, not very easily. So... You mentioned creativity, and this is something interesting, and I'll become a little bit critical here. Uh, there, I live in um, in a place where there are lots of universities and colleges, and there are lots of students, of course, and, and there are lots of cafes, and the students go to those cafes, and what they do is they go in there, they sit down, they they order their coffee, they, they bring it back to their table, they open their laptop, and they put on their uh, – they put on their uh, – put in their earbuds, they turn on music, and that's that. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. No, uh, they are not if, talking if to you. Will. Oh, yes. Well, what, what I find extraordinary these days with all our new technological paraphernalia is, in a sense, we can all be couch potatoes all of the time. Yeah. You don't need to be just in front of the TV in the living room. You can be outside, you can be driving, and you can be completely immersed in your world to the exclusion, it would seem, of the rest of the universe. And that, I think, is quite a shift. Suddenly, we can all sort of be in our own private bubbles, perhaps all of the time. Nevertheless, I can't help but feel that if a person, even if they have the headphones on, and even if they're buried in their widescreen portable computer, or a laptop, um, if they look up and they're in a public place, they might see or think of something that would have been completely unanticipated if they were home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I can actually attest to that because in 2000, I think it must have been five, four maybe, I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I was sitting in a cafe and I overheard these two guys talking about something. And um, I made bold to ask them a little bit about it. 
and it entirely changed my life. I mean, what I do today, this podcast right here, this the whole New Books Network is a result of me overhearing that conversation by those two guys. I mean, I still know those two guys. Uh, and I, I, I must say here, Marshall, um, you raise, I, I'm suddenly very regretful that we didn't include you as an author in, yeah. in, in our collection, because that's one of the best stories. Yeah. I, I mean, wow. I yeah. mean, no wonder uh, we're doing this interview. You, you just proved my point in abundance. Yeah. And, you know, they were talking about, I can tell you what they were talking about. They were talking about uh, one of the very early tagging sites on the Internet. And um, I can't even remember the name of it because it's largely gone now. Uh, somebody will remember it, but it was a site basically that allowed you to tag things and it was a social site. So anybody could participate. And I just thought this was fascinating that you could just wander around the web tagging things and then share your collections of tags with people. I don't know why I thought that was cool, but I thought it was cool. And I just started to talk to these guys about it and they basically sent me to some other sites and, you know, then I started to sort of investigate those. And then I went to work, you know, researching Wikipedia. And then I went to work like doing all kind of YouTube and lots of things. And, and then I, I basically started this podcast. I mean, really, it came exactly from those two guys. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Well, as I say, I, I can't think of any better um, confirmation. Yeah. And I, I hear that in this age of conspiracy theories that somebody might think, well, that this was all planned out ahead of time. <laughs> Believe me, if somebody planned it out, it, would, it did not work out the way they wanted it to. Because my <laughs> my income went from, you know, X to like X minus a lot. I mean, it's much more enjoyable, but, you know, uh, and I'm glad I met them. And I'm glad I, I actually had the, you know, I had the temerity to actually say something to them about what they were doing. And as I say, the kind of interesting thing is, is that what they were talking about bears almost no relationship to, well, no obvious relationship to the New Books Network. But I can tell you that I could take you through the steps. <laughs> no problem. But you can, nobody could see it. Um, and, and all the steps kind of led one to another until it got me here in this chair talking to you about cafes. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And I think that sort of coffee house, uh, restaurant, uh, it, it, you know, it can happen in, I think, any place where you're sort of sitting down and you've let down your guard, you're eating or drinking. Yeah. And I think that's very important. Um, <clears throat> anthropologists studying um, uh, chimpanzees and other primates often basically approach these primates in the act of eating mm -hmm. because if they're eating they're not going to be fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so just before we go, I have remembered their names. One is Ed Villametti and the other was uh, Lou Rosenfeld. Those were the guys um, that I was talking to in that cafe. Great. <laughs> so I'm going to get in touch with them and I'm going to send in this interview because Ed Villametti and Lou Rosenberg are responsible for it. So um, we've taken up a lot Wonderful. of your time. Yeah, we've taken up a lot of your time, Scott. Thanks very much. But before I let you go, um, let me ask our traditional final question. And that is, what are you working on now? I'm working now basically on something that I introduce in the uh, – article I have in the book. My book chapter deals with Jean-Paul Sartre and World War II. 
And the way out of the experience of the liberation of Paris, he comes up with his notion of a group infusion. The way a group at a bus stop or in a cafe, and in being nothingness, he uses the example of a group in a cafe, goes from being sort of alienated, isolated individuals into becoming a group that acts for the common good. Mm-hmm. He gives the example of a accident, an accident happening outside of the cafe, and a group of strangers being turned into a group of basically comrades, collaborators in the positive sense. What I'm doing now is exploring the history of cafes in France from 1934 to 1946, mm-hmm. the moment when the number of cafes reached its all-time high, and you had movies and singers praising the glories of cafe life to 1946 after World War II, when the number of cafes, in part due to the war, but especially because of Vichy anti-alcohol and anti-cafe legislation that remains in effect, the number of cafes as a result of this goes from about 500,000 in the late 1930s to the official figure today of 33,000. Mm. So I think it's probably closer to about 75,000. Mm-hmm. But there again, you get into the complex issue of exactly how you define a cafe. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I'm working on now. And uh, I hope in the future to do uh, another book which asks the question, is France better off today with more hospitals than cafes? <laughs> this, this was the wish of many French parliamentarians That's funny. during World War One, <laughs> And in many ways, France today does have more hospitals than cafes. Yeah. But it's interesting today, the French are trying to re-energize cafe life in part by injecting music because the French, like the whole world, is realizing that creativity is absolutely essential in this knowledge economy Mm -hmm. and why the best places to be creative is in the cafe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's absolutely true. Well, before I let you go, I said it was the last question, but it's not. And you get get asked this question all the time, I bet. But I'm going to ask it. Uh, What's your favorite cafe? My favorite cafe at the moment would be the Cafe d'Anton in the basically in the Place Odeon, right next to the statue of the famous revolutionary Danton in Paris. I think they have an incredible cafe creme, and they have <laughs> a series of windows that really allow you to feel that you're not only in the cafe, but also on the street. Mm-hmm. This is just down from the classic trio of the Floor de Mago and Brasserie Leap which is farther up the Boulevard Saint-Germain. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, that's my uh, favorite cafe. Well, I, I, hope that, I, yeah, I hope you get to spend a lot of time there. Well, thank you. I'm teaching online in particular at the moment so that I can teach in Paris 
and be at these cafes. Well, that sounds that sounds great. So uh, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Scott Hain today about uh, his book or a book he edited and contributed to called The Thinking Space, The Cafe as Cultural Institution in Paris, Italy, and Vienna. So let me say thank you, Scott, for being on the show. Well, it was a pleasure, Marshall. I'm honored to be on your wonderful show. Thank you very much. And let me tell everybody who's listening that I am Marshall Poe, and I'm the host of New Books in History. And thank you for listening, and I hope everyone has a great week. 